you are listening to About Progress. This is episode 267, Christopher Clark, a tribute. Progressor fam, I am so sad to be sharing this episode with you today. This is a tribute to one of our own, Chris Clark, who passed away June 7th due to complications of ALS. Chris was a talented, well-respected, and renowned actor, director, and professor. And while we didn't know each other personally, I was an admirer of his humor and gifts from afar. I made the leap a little over three years ago to ask him to be on my show to talk about his somewhat recent diagnosis with ALS. At the time, he was making the transition to being wheelchair-bound, needing to uh, start having his family feed him, and he would soon lose his voice. Now, last summer, I shared an encore of that original episode, and I told you then that it was my favorite episode to date, and it absolutely still is. Let me tell you why. On top of it being a huge honor to record his voice for his family and his friends before he wasn't able to speak anymore, I learned from Chris in our time together that even with the most monumental trials that we are forced to face in our lives, we still have our own agency on how we are going to deal with them. Did Chris have hard days? Did he feel sad and even angry or helpless over his position? Yes, absolutely. And he admitted to all of those emotions in our interview together. But Chris shared and exemplified that even while it's okay to suffer and feel those hard feelings, you still have a choice. And Chris, until the very end, chose to be himself, to have a great sense of humor and generosity and kindness, even in typing form when he could no longer talk. He chose to find the good and to be the good. He showed us that we can't choose our trials, but that we can still choose who we are. His resilience and kindness are both qualities I hope to carry into my own life, thanks to Chris. I know that we are all facing so much right now. I hope this tribute to Chris can give you the space you need to reflect about who you are, what your values are, and how you can carry all of that into your life, no matter what difficulties you are facing. Now, you know that my quality right now is a little low. That's because I don't have a fancy microphone. As you know, we're in the middle of a move right now. And we are going back to the good old days when I also wasn't recording on a fancy microphone. So none of this is top quality, but it's still to date is my most cherished interview. A little behind the scenes for you, um, when we recorded this interview originally, we had to split it up in two segments because um, he got tired and we we had planned for that ahead of time. But the first half we recorded, you know, just wherever he could and whenever he could. And the first half happened to be when his family was around. So you're here, his family in the background then. It was not distracting at all, I would say, just so you know the differences. And then the second half was um, the following morning when it was a little quiet around there. So that's why there's that difference. But... Um, I'm not going to go and just replay that interview as is. And I just want to say thank you to Chris, where I know he is, and his family too, for the gift it is to share his words with you today. Hi, I'm here with Christopher Clark. Hi, Chris. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. I've been so excited to have you on the show. I would love it if you could start by giving our listeners an, an introduction uh, to myself? Yes. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, my name is Christopher Chris Clark, uh, and I live in Provo. Uh, I was, I'm actually pretty much a Provo born kid. I wasn't born here. We moved here when I was 10, 
but I went to BYU and live here now because I teach uh, theater at UVU. So I, uh, I'm 45. I've got five kids. Um, I, I'm pretty fascinating. <laughs> He's making a joke. <laughs> I said that to I him make before. A joke. <laughs> you are fascinating. Um, uh, <laughs> we have so much we can talk about today. I know that many of our listeners will know that you were diagnosed with ALS a little over a year ago. So we will be spending a lot yeah. of our time about that. But first, I wanted yep. to talk about life before ALS because you have such an amazing resume. I told you that I found your resume online, which is kind of creepy, but it was there. <laughs> and you have the most amazing resume with your with your theater and your acting. So I want to know first about that. Like, when did you first fall in love with acting? Um, okay, so... It's it's hard to really pinpoint. Um, I when I was very little, uh, my mom had albums of uh, Broadway musicals. She used to play, and my sister and I used to act them out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that may have been my first exposure to it. Um, when I was eight or nine, my mom uh, put me in a summer camp where they did uh, theater and drama. And um, they, I played Oedipus Rex in the version of Oedipus Rex, and my sister played my mother, which is really (laughs) funny because in that play, Oedipus marries his mother. Yeah. And I don't know, like, why we were doing that play. Um, That's hilarious. I mean, I was eight years old. It's really strange. But anyway, I think that was kind of my first exposure to it so when you decided to become a professional actor was that something that surprised your family no not at all i had done um enough of it uh that i think they were actually really supportive of it um which is a relief because i meet a lot of people who's parents are not supportive of it Mm -hmm. and uh i don't think it was was particularly surprised uh but i i didn't know i actually thought that i was going to be a lawyer i I knew that i wanted to have a family and that it would be really hard to support kids as an actor and so i i i i kind of figured like in school i would go to law law school but Mm -hmm. um and in fact, I told my wife I was going to go to law school, and I think I lied her. I lied to her <laughs> a little bit because I never did. She thought she was marrying a lawyer. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, have you but acted a lawyer before? She married an actor. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no. But I mean, that's not what lawyer. That's what they do, right? I guess that's it's all true. Performance, anyway. It's kind of like You're right. Yeah, I mean, it's a performative job. Uh huh. So. Um, I, I I think I did acting and theater all through high school because it was fun. I wasn't really set on doing it as a career mm-hmm. um, until like until like uh, I became miserable. I was working in retail. Mm-hmm. I uh, managed Barnes and Noble stores, 
and um, was miserable. And one day I just talked to my wife and said, hey, I, I need to do something I love. So we quit. We quit doing that job and moved to, moved to England for a, a graduate program. Oh, wow. And, was, yeah. And was this so, with the Globe? Is, I mean, I memorized your well, resume, okay. so. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was part of my graduate work. Because um, I went to the University of Exeter, cool. Exeter, which is in England. And, um, yeah, and, and as part of that, I worked at the Globe, which was super cool. That's amazing. And was that when you kind of had to come to terms that this was what your calling was in life to to pursue theater? Um, well, I think I think it was before that because mm-hmm. I think it had to be before that that before I made that really difficult decision just to move move out there. Um, yes. So I think my wife and I were pretty. I mean, obviously there was a lot of like thought and prayer. Mm-hmm. And and everything that went into it, because it's a huge decision. Yes. But we we knew at that point that's the direction I was going, and I've never regretted it. That's great. Well, you know, yeah. you, you've done so many amazing parts. You've directed incredible plays. Uh, you talked about how you are a professor, and you've been the chair of the theater yeah. department at, at UVU. So, what were some of your Favorite, I, I don't know, favorite of all those things. I know that's probably hard to choose, but what was some of your favorite things you were involved with? Well, I think that nominally I'm uh, I'm a director more, more than an actor. Mm-hmm. I don't act a ton. I do a little bit, but um, my degree is in directing, mm-hmm. um, and I love that. And I love being able to work on sometimes out of the not kind of out of the box, I guess, uh, types of uh, productions. I like doing things that are weird mm-hmm. <laughs> or challenging or just artistically different. Mm-hmm. I don't love doing the same plays over and over again in the same way. It's boring to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So my best experiences in theater have been, uh, I think when I've been able to, um, create a vision, create a world that hasn't been created before. It's very fun for me. It's very exciting for me. You know, and you talked about how you are a family man as well. I mean, having five kids. Uh, so as you're, as you are balancing this professional life that I'm sure is super demanding and takes up a lot of um, family hours too, how how did yeah. your family inspire your work and how were you able to deal with the professional ups and downs with, with them on your mind? Well, I'm married to a saint. Um, yeah. I'm married to a person uh, who understands the value of arts, of the arts, who not only understands them, but promotes them. So my wife has always been super um, encouraging and helpful and that's been hard, you know, because uh, I will, I will have oftentimes worked a full day at the university, and then I come home and have to go back to rehearsal an hour later. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a, a, a special person 
to understand that. Um, and that's, that's Lisa. That's my wife. Um, and, and, and there is, there's a real sense of joy that I get from bringing my kids to see my, my stuff and to see them entertained by it. Or, I mean, I, I think my kids have been able to liberate a really interesting life because yeah. their dad creates things with, you know, unicorns and cyclops. And <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, people acting like pigs. You know what I mean? Like yeah. not everybody's dad does that. And my kids mm. to them, it's, it's the most normal thing in the world. And so uh, obviously I would say I love what I do, but my main goal has always been just to provide for my family. I'm just lucky, I guess, that I get to do it, you know, by doing something I love. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, you've taught your children, too, how, you know, your life might not look like the stereotypical life, you know, that they might imagine is right or correct in their heads, but it's right. very much right for them. Yep, exactly. And, and uh, you know, I, my wife and I are waiting to see if any of our kids are interested in theater, and they're kind of not, which is really—I really? mean, they love to go, they love to go, but but uh, at least the first three are all on different paths. I have one son that's uh, doing computers and commercial music, and another son who's very athletic, a daughter who's into science. So it's really kind of interesting to see which way they're all sort of headed. Is is there a family favorite, a production that you've done that uh, seems to be the... <laughs> I thought you meant like a family, uh, like a child favorite. No, not a... Yes, I'll uh, tell you which one is my I'm sure that changes daily. So what yeah, about totally. your, your productions, I meant? Uh, that my family loved? Mm-hmm. Well... It would hard. Uh, it'd be hard to say, but if I had to guess, um, about five years ago, I directed Xanadu, I which is a horrible that. musical uh, <laughs> based on the 1980 movie with Olivia John, and it's so ridiculous, <laughs> and uh, and I, it's so stupid and funny. And uh, I directed it about five years ago, and then we redid it last year again as a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. So my kids are all very, they've seen it now many times. And, um, I would say that's probably a favorite if I had to ask them. Let's turn now to your personal life. I feel like Oprah right now, but let's turn to your personal life, Chris. (laughs) So, so I want to hear about what symptoms you were experiencing before you got diagnosed with ALS. Okay, so I would say that I had symptoms about eight months before I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. This was in the summer of, of uh, 2015, uh, and I, I don't know, I, I was in Europe because uh, I did a study abroad program for UVU mm-hmm. for about 11 years. So I was in Europe, and I noticed I was waking up at night with really bad cramps in my legs, and then when I came home, I just noticed that there was a, 
a deadness in one of my legs. It's hard to describe. It's like my, my leg was drunk, my right leg. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't work as fast as my left leg would. And there was just something dragging in there. Uh, <clears throat> over the course of that fall, it got progressively worse. Um, and we began to suspect that it was my back because I had had back surgery back in 97 or 98. Okay. And we thought, okay, it's time for a tune-up, you know? Um, So around the first of the year in 2016, I started to see, uh, well, I went in for a series of MRIs, and um, they were looking to see what was wrong with my back. And as they progressed, they started to realize that there was nothing wrong with my back. It's fine. And that's when I noticed things started moving quickly. Suddenly I had different doctors calling me to come in and um, they don't tell you, you know, they don't tell you what they're testing for. They just tell you that we want to see you. And um, so around the beginning of March of last year, I had, I went to see a neurologist in Salt Lake and she did some tests on me and had me walk and by this time, I was barely walking. I, hmm. um, because I mean, pain. without a... Or just it's like not necessarily that. painful. Mm-hmm. It's just they don't work. Mm-hmm. I see. And so, mm-hmm. so I... Um, so I'm trying to remember the, the sequence. So anyway, the, the, she said to me, um, just so you know, I'm, I'm worried about Lou Gehrig's. It was the really? first time I'd ever even considered it. I, I, I knew vaguely what ALS was. I knew who Stephen Hawking was. Mm-hmm. I knew about the ice bucket challenge. Yeah. Um, but I never, it never entered my mind that I could have it. Um, but she said I worried about it, which meant, hmm. um, which meant that. Well, so my brother-in-law is a doctor, mm-hmm. and he says, when a doctor says she's worried about something, it means you probably have it, because mm-hmm. they won't name it unless they're mm-hmm. pretty sure. Um, and so, okay, so then so then I'm Googling on my phone yeah. uh, ALS as I'm leaving the doctor's office, and of course I see, you know, a lifespan of two to five years, I see all these terrible things oh my gosh, yeah. about it, and yeah, and I'm mm-hmm. freaking out. Yeah. Um, and then it was about two weeks later that it was confirmed. I went in to a neurologist, well, here in Utah Valley, and he he basically confirmed it, and then sent me up to the University of Utah mm-hmm. three days later, and they reconfirmed it as well. So there it was. So when, when you did receive that diagnosis, what was your initial reaction to, you know, it being confirmed? That's interesting um, because I think because this doctor had warned me of what it could be, mm-hmm. I sort of felt like it was coming. So when the exact moment came, I didn't, I didn't really fall apart. I, mm-hmm. it actually in a way felt good 
to finally have a diagnosis. When you're in limbo for so long, you just you want to know what the monster is that you're fighting. Yeah. And and so finally to be able to put a name to it, I was surprisingly um, relieved. I, yeah, I did have kind of a funny thing happen to me. Um, about a week before I was diagnosed, I um, I was in at Vancouver and um, on a work trip, and I was having real difficulty sleeping because I was really worried about whether I had Luke Gehrig or not. Yeah. <laughs> and so one night I was like, I stayed up watching TV, and I thought. I'm just going to pick the dumbest thing on TV and watch it because it'll get my mind off this whole thing. So I, I, I found the love boat, which is a, you know, super stupid show from when I was a kid. And, um, I started watching that and I thought this, this will totally distract me. I'll go to sleep. Anyway, in this episode (laughs) of the love boat, um, this man, lady, yeah, on that show, everyone always has, like, relationship issues. And um, anyway, this man and this lady are having issues. And she takes him to the ship's doctor. And while the doctor's talking to him, uh, he notices that the man, like, dropped things, uh, dropped objects. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, I'm sorry to tell you this, sir, but you have Lou Gehrig's oh. disease. <laughs> I was like, what are they, what are the odds that on the love boat, someone gets ALS (laughs) while I'm super stressed out about it? Yeah, such an anticlimactic. What a weird thing. Like, that is weird. Right, exactly. Yeah, super weird. Anyway, so I (laughs) felt like that was a sign from God, you know? Like, you're not getting out of this. And can't be distracted from this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who who knew? So for people yeah. who, who don't know, I mean, they've probably seen the Ice Bucket Challenge. They've heard of it. Yeah. Um, but but how how do you just describe Lou Gehrig's disease to people who don't have enough um, information on it? Sure. So it's a motor neuron disease. That it, it attacks my muscles. And it, it's different for different people. For some people, it can start in their hands. For other people, it can start in their mouths, in their throat. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate in a way, mine started in my legs and has moved up. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> my legs are pretty much out of commission. I, ca- I can't walk. I'm in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. My hands aren't super great. Um, and it's affecting, obviously, the way I talk now. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it slows down. It weakens your muscles. Um, and becomes very debilitating. Uh, if it continues on the the trajectory it's on, I I will lose my ability to speak at all, mm. and and uh, and that's kind of <laughs> the road we're going down. Yeah. We're trying to figure out how to stave that off for as long as po- as mm. possible. Is is that almost the the hardest thing to take, knowing that you won't be able to speak, or is there something else that you are especially yeah dreading? that that's the worst part because mm-hmm. I feel like my 
personalities in my voice. And so when that's gone, I feel like I'm just really boring. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Or I think, you know, what's also weird about this whole thing is that they don't know what causes this disease. Mm -hmm. They don't know what it is. It's not genetic. Um, They're trying, and that's part of the reason why it has more. It has no treatment or no, no cure because they don't know what's causing it. So it's hard to pinpoint treat if you don't know where it's coming from. So it's a big. There's a shroud of mystery hanging over it, and um, and so that's. I think that's frustrating for us and for everyone mm-hmm. that has it. It's just trying to understand and comes to come to terms with why we even have it. So they the treatment um, you said they don't have ones that to to treat the cause, but I they, do they just spend their time treating the symptoms more? As much as they can, but there's really not much really? that they can do. No, and when I was <laughs> when I was initially diagnosed, they told me to get fat. Put on really? weight, which is a nice, a nice thing to hear. Is <laughs> that eat whatever you want as much of whatever you want? Um, yeah, because people who have a little weight on them tend to last longer. Oh, Told wow. me to sleep more, so that's a nice thing. Always to sleep more mm-hmm. and and not go to the gym because yeah. uh, because they don't want me to expend energy. My energy is pretty limited mm-hmm. so I have to be very careful how I use it so but but that's kind of it there's yeah. no real medication I can take I take the things that kind of help but there's no man I wish there was some kind of a uh, yeah. a magic pill mm-hmm. but we all wish that yeah. and it's just not yet back to when you first uh, got diagnosed you said it, it was this strange feeling of um, relief and finding out what it finally was. Yeah. But afterward, did you have some intense grieving to do or anger that that came up for you? And, and if so, how did you deal with that? Um, okay, so, well, I mean, you have to sort of know my personality. I'm not a very angry person. Mm-hmm. And so I never really had any of those moments where I was, um, you know, cursing God. And and I don't judge people who do because mm-hmm. it, it would be very easy to do. But I, I've always kind of like rolled through the punches. And so I, I accepted pretty quickly that this was something I believe that I agreed to in a previous life. Really? Um, so... But there was definitely a grieving period, a really difficult grieving period mm-hmm. for me and for my wife mm-hmm. and my kids as well. I mean, what you're grieving is a future that you probably won't won't have. And yeah. so it's hard. There's just question marks hanging everywhere. How, how long am I going to live? What will I be able to see for my kids? Mm-hmm. You know, it's all, it's stressful in a way. Yeah. And I think we went through a grieving period. And I'm sure we still are. Mm-hmm. 
but there was definitely a period where we were in shock and it just didn't it felt unreal and now you know a year and a half later i feel like i've come to terms with it not like i've given up but i understand this is my life this is how my life is now and uh and I kind of just have to accept that role, <clears throat> accept that and roll with it, mm-hmm. um, and and make it as positive of an experience as I can. So I uh, we've we've already kind of talked a little bit about the changes you've experienced the past year physically, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how the disease has unfolded for you the past year and what impact it's yeah. had on you. Um, and would you like to hear what affected me physically first or that'd be great. Are you, Let's start or with more that. emotionally. Okay. Start with um, physical, but I want to hear emotional, um, emotionally. As yeah, well. of course. Well, it's all kind of tied together. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to, really list one without the other, but, um, physically. So, you know, it, it started in my legs, uh, specifically it started in my right leg and then eventually kind of crossed over to my left leg. Mm. Um, and, and then really it's worked its way up as we kind of suspected it would. Um, and maybe a better way to say that is it's worked its way in, uh, because oh. it, started in my hands. Uh, I, I mean, once it kind of progressed through my legs, it went to my fingers and my hands and then start, it's all moving in basically towards my lungs. Um, which is how most people with ALS pass away is through, uh, um, well, basically through suffocation, oh, which is really? not fun. Yeah. Well, um, that's an understatement, because, right? <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, because your your lungs kind of shut down. Wow. Um, and so what what's in well, there's many things interesting mm-hmm. about the disease, but one thing that's interesting is that um, it starts in different places for different people. If it were to start in my throat or mouth, which it does for many people, the uh, the pathway to the lungs is much quicker. So in a way, um, I was lucky, <laughs> if you could say lucky, okay. uh, that might started in my legs because it, it, it did sort of buy me more more time. Mm-hmm. I'm at the point now, obviously, I walk, I'm in a, uh, I have a motorized wheelchair. Um, I can put, uh, I can put weight on my legs, but I I can't really stand without someone next to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my hands, I, I mean, I can't write. I can feed myself, sort of. Mm-hmm. But but lately, I've just been having my wife feed me just for the sake of speed. Yeah. Um, I, I'll be like at a in front of a dinner plate for an hour if I try to feed myself. So, um, so I'm kind of in a place where I'm without the use of my legs or my hands. Um, and, and then most recently I, <clears throat> it's affected my, my tongue 
and my lungs, <coughs> excuse me, uh, which is why I sound the way I do now, um, because my tongue is slowing down, and I don't always have enough breath to finish sentences. So that's kind mm-hmm. of where I am physically. It's kind of a wreck. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, emotionally, I've come to a pretty good place. Um, and and part of that may have to do with my drugs. Um, <laughs> okay. Because I'm pretty well medicated. Yeah. <laughs> but another part of it is, is having... Uh, dealt with this for two years now. Mm-hmm. This just sort of feels like my life. And, um, you know, you kind of get on with it. You get on with life. That's kind of where I am right now. That wasn't an overnight thing. Of course I didn't, not. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and, and, you know, I'm still on this journey. It's uh, It's not going to immediately get better mm-hmm. and there, I'm going to have some really hard times ahead. I know, um, but I just have to take it sort of day by day, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of times people who are battling a lot of mental illness, you know, like depression, anxiety, a lot of people say, you know, choose happiness, choose happiness. But I actually yeah. do hear people who I talk to who have suffered with these things, they do say there is an element of choice there. And I've been wondering with you how that came into play, this ability to still try to choose um, this acceptance that you talked about gaining um, and the humor that you seem to turn to as well as your family. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's a choice. I think that's, I'm glad to hear that other people are saying that because um I don't really think of myself as a Pollyanna or, mm-hmm. or someone who's like sickeningly sweet. Uh, <laughs> I, I do, I do think you have to choose <clears throat> happiness because, um, it's your life. You, you know what I mean? Like it's, you, you are in control of your own personal happiness and, I could lay in bed all day sick and angry or I could uh, choose to laugh and, and, you know, get out of my house mm-hmm. and, and uh, make uh, a happy life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't find that it's any more difficult than it was before. My problems have just changed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they weren't, well, <laughs> I'll tell you something interesting. A friend of mine who also has ALS, uh, when he was, uh, when he was diagnosed, the doctor said, you have, you know, you have ALS, Lou Lou Gehrig's disease, and then pointedly told him, uh, please don't commit suicide. Oh. Which, yeah, right? Which is fascinating. You know, it wasn't a joke. Yeah. And, um, you could easily do that. And I mean, that means like actively committing suicide, but it also means just resolving yourself to, well, this is a thing I have and I'm going to die. And then you quickly die. Mm -hmm. I I think there's something to be said for staying busy 
uh, you know, I'm still working full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I still direct. Yeah. Well, I just have to, you know, mm-hmm. because it keeps me, I feel alive. I feel productive. There's a huge, huge difference, I think, in making that choice. <clears throat> and what about your family? I imagine that each one is different. I mean, you do have five children. you know. I do, yeah. Yeah, so they probably all responded to this differently. But overall, how has the progress gone there with uh, trying to, you know, move forward and accept this new new life? Um, well, you're exactly right. Each one of them seems to process this whole thing differently. Um, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know how they would respond. And um, and they're doing great. They really are. In fact, I, I joke to my wife, Lisa, I would say, um, I w- why aren't the kids more sad? <laughs> why why aren't they upset? And oh, and, yeah. sh- and she just says, um, because we're teaching them how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And if anything, my kids have become super uh, helpful. The it's almost their way of dealing with it is by being active. They, you know, um, they help feed me. Uh, my oldest son dresses me every day they they all just kind of jump in with you know what do you need how how can we help and it really does feel like a team effort Uh, of course they have moments um and a lot of times i'm sure i don't i don't see them um but i think a proactive life is the best way to deal with something like this in a in a family Mm mm-hmm well, I see that. I see that proactiveness and, you know, that humor you mentioned, too. I mean, your Instagram feed is, is just hilarious. I, I laugh every time you post something. I mean, that even That's the list. Awesome. Oh, it's so great. And uh, even the list, like uh, Lisa had made for your oldest son about the to-do list of taking care of you yeah. that morning. And you said it takes a village. You know, I just love that you're, how you and your family yeah. are, are, like you're saying, proactive and... And, and turning to that humor as well. Well, yeah, and, and that's kind of how we've always been. Uh, you know, my wife is incredibly funny, and, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, she's, uh, people know her from uh, the Chad Books commercials, yes. or she's on a show <laughs> called Random Acts, mm-hmm. or she was at Once I Was a Beehive, and she's very funny. She's she a is. funny person. And so the two of us together, I think, we deal with this with a good touch of of um, joking um, because it's ridiculous, this whole thing. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we know another way to deal with it, but I, I do think our kids pick up on that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they joke as well, you know? Yeah. It's just the way our family operates. It's not every family, but it's it's us. So, you know, this, this disease, I mean, like you said, you can uh, let it own you in so many ways. And I love just what you do to stay proactive, but also to be motivated in your personal life to continue to progress. And I was curious, what are you doing right now to, to push yourself beyond just this physical uh, elements that you can deal with every single day? But I mean, you talked about you still direct and are still working. Uh, Tell me more about what you're doing there. Okay. Well, 
Well, you you're asking that a kind of bad moment because uh, well, only because I'm in between directing jobs, oh, I so see. I'm not directing right now, and I'm out for the summer for the school for UVO. So vacation time, huh? Right? Yeah, right now I'm kind of doing nothing, but I do have a show coming up in the fall that I'm directing at UVU, and I'll go back to work. Uh, full time. Well, I'm still full time. It's just I'm not in the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, in August, uh, you know, the semester starts again, and I'm planning to be there. Um, That's great. They've changed my load, which is really cool at UVO, so that uh, I'm not teaching big uh, classes, big lecture classes. Yeah, it's just hard for me to talk. So now, what I do is I work more with senior students. Um, mentorship, internships, that kind of stuff, and I'm still able to work. So, so um, I'm really looking forward to that. Actually, yeah. I, I'm looking forward to um, getting back to a, a fall semester, being productive that way, um, and then starting to direct again in the evenings. I have kind of a a cool uh, passion project that I'm going to do this fall. And so, like, stuff like that keeps me going, knowing that I have these things coming up. Mm-hmm. It keeps me invigorated, and uh, and I know that I have to, uh, I have to really show up, mm-hmm. or I'm going to let people down. So it's yeah. it's good to have that that in my life. I think. You know, I was thinking, aside from being told you can sleep as much as you possibly can and eat as much as you possibly can has anything else good come from this um yeah totally in a strange way Mm -hmm. um i i have seen i i think i have a better lens to see the goodness of people i i've seen people respond to this uh in the most incredible ways people come forward to help and they'll say, how can I help? And, you know, initially people would say, we want to help, but we'd say, well, there's nothing to do. Don't worry about it. But now Elise and I both have said, I've just decided to say yes. So when someone Mm -hmm. says, can I help? We'll say, yes, what can you do? And it could be something as simple as, you know, somebody knows how to uh, fix sprinklers or, you know, someone might want to come in and help clean the kitchen once. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and people love it. People love to help in whatever way they can. And so that's been super good for me because I look back on my life before my diagnosis and I think, you know, was I one of these people? Was I willing to help? And I, I don't know if I was. And so it's super good for me to see that and go, wow, there's some incredible people mm-hmm. in this world, like genuinely good people. So I'd say that's that's some of the good that's come from it. That's great. Um, you know, Chris, I, I was wondering if someone, uh, you know, was diagnosed with the same disease, if there was something, some one key piece of advice that you would give to them at the start, um, what would you say? I, you know, I would just give them some advice that was given to me by my doctor uh, and, and has proved to be true, which is 
um, he called it the 15-minute principle, which is you can have 15 minutes every day to cry and feel sorry for yourself, and then you need to get back into action. Mm. And I've lived by that. I thought that was so great. It's like there's nothing wrong with crying. There's nothing wrong with feeling awful Mm -hmm. about everything. There's nothing wrong with uh, being depressed about it. At some point, you know, you need to get back to life and live as much as you can, Mm -hmm. uh, as hard as that is. And there certainly have been really hard days, you know, in the past year and a half. Um, But you have to get up and and live, you know, getting back into bed and closing the curtains and shutting yourself off from the world will only hasten the end. Mm. And so I love that. I love that idea. Me too. (sighs) It's really cool. Well, so many people can can take that on, even if they don't have an illness, you know, like you, you they can take that sure, on if they yeah. have some really hard life things handed to yeah, them. Yeah, for sure. And there's nothing wrong with being sad, um, mm-hmm. but it, it can't control your life. Well, I don't know if you feel like you've already answered this, but I'm still going to answer, uh, ask it anyway, because I okay. do this as my <laughs> final question for each guest. And I oh, always, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you can take this wherever you want. Um, but I always ask, what have you learned about yourself the past few years? So it's kind of like, what have you learned about yourself throughout the, the past yeah. two years of dealing with this? Um, am I allowed to be spiritual? Oh, yeah. Of course. Okay. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, primarily I've learned that God loves me. Mm. Um, I've learned that um, the atonement is real. And that, uh, that you know, I grew up hearing that, uh, that Christ uh, took uh, the sins of the world on him, but he also took the pains of the world. And I never really... Um, paid much attention to what that meant, the pains of the world. But now I understand. It just means mm. that these things that I'm suffering, um, he's he's taken that on. He's felt that. And he understands. So uh, spiritually, I feel incredibly blessed to have this experience, oddly enough, mm-hmm. um, because I've learned it's brought me so much closer um, to the other side. Mm-hmm. I've also learned that, um, like I mentioned, that people are incredibly genuine and um, thoughtful, and I need to allow them to do that mm-hmm. um, because uh, I'm I'm an independent person. I'm a I'm a um, assertive person, and and this this illness is really not my nature. And I've learned to let people <clears throat> help me and say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've also learned the value of family, and is especially my wife, who's my primary caregiver, mm-hmm. but also my my partner. And um, I've learned to value her more than anything. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of it. 
Well, that's pretty amazing, oh, I'd say, Chris. Well, Chris, this is absolutely going to go down as one of my very favorite interviews. I'm so grateful oh, that you, you take the time. Thank you very much. Yeah, not a problem. I'm happy to do it. What a magnificent man. Um, I just wanted to tell you another funny story. Last summer, I emailed Chris to ask for permission to replay the interview in an encore. And he, you know, gave permission freely. He was so kind. And then I noticed after his sign off, you know how people usually have a quote or something inspirational. He had these words. I typed this with my eyes. And it just made me chuckle because it seemed so like Chris. I know that many of you have been touched by his life, and I hope what you can take from this interview is permission to feel whatever you are going through right now and to still choose who you're going to be in spite of it. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm going to leave you here. Please remember that life is about progress, not perfection.